In the days of Calvin Coolidge, it was said, the business of America is business. By contrast, other cultures like the Japanese, whose business is the Japanese, America's combination as a youthful country and having a vast untapped frontier, especially in its early years, made the one common denominator of a polyglot nation a drive to tap vast natural resources and build wealth based on a large internal market. To operate at this unprecedented speed at scale, unleashed by new technologies such as the railroad and telegraph, author Alfred D. Chandler contends a new managerial revolution had to take place, creating the hierarchical behemoth corporations that America has become known for and have proliferated in today's modern global economy. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. Hello, and uh, welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century Podcast. I am Hans Launder. Tonight I am joined by Mr. Adam Smith. Hey. And the illustrious Mr. Nick Mason. Hey, how's it going? Well, it's quite an interesting time in America, uh, in the world. We have, um, well, all kinds of Semitic kinetic action in the Middle East, and we have uh, uh, aging infrastructure and uh, monopolies collapsing here at home. It's uh, pretty interesting. Wouldn't you guys say so? I guess. It seems like uh, I've seen this movie before, though, unfortunately. I think Nick said earlier, it's like uh, the 1970s just just came back. <laughs> A lot of people have been saying that. It's like Carter. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strong back. 1970s vibes, actually. It's like gas lines and like... <laughs> Inflation, you know, Camp David. Middle Eastern warfare, Jew shenanigans, a president cooed by the establishment. Yeah, it has like all of the same hallmarks. Well, uh, tonight yeah, we're maybe actually, it'll have a different ending this time. Yeah, <laughs> it'll have like a like a alternative history ending to 1945. Not you know, not like a 1970s yeah, ending where we just got a, a robotic Irish guy as president. Um, but uh, today we are not talking about any of that. Fortunately, we are talking about uh, something else far more interesting, which is business history. Um, for those of you who have not already fallen asleep, uh, we will be discussing the visible hand, the managerial revolution in American business um, by Mr. Alfred DuPont Chandler Jr. So uh, I guess I should start with uh, who is Alfred DuPont Chandler Jr.? Uh, or Alfred? I, I, I don't know, but I think he went to a prep school. 
He is uh, just he, guessing. He is an interesting character. Um, he is. You're right. Uh, shall we say? Uh, of a certain pedigree, you could say he is um, effectively a member of the old Wasp establishment in America. Comes from a, uh, a prominent uh, family. He was the uh, the grandson of Henry Varnum Poor, um, and his uh, part of his maternal family and his maternal family line was raised, although not technically blood related to. Uh, the DuPont family. Um, at least that's the official story. I think it's a little odd that your family would be raised by the DuPont family if you didn't have some kind of connection to them. Maybe this is a love child uh, situation. But yeah, he, um, he he basically came from a very prominent family. His father was a uh, was a prominent engineer. Um, when he uh, so. When he before he died in two thousand seven, he actually was in the middle of writing a biography of uh, I'm sorry his his grandfather, uh, Major William G. Ramsey, and uh, G. Ramsey was the first chief engineer of uh, of Dupont, Demore's chemical company, and he was really the guy who oversaw decades of expansion that took Dupont from you know, a, a fixture of the New England and Tidewater uh, industrial network to global powerhouse and research and development, exports, you know, multi, dozens of industries and sub-industries and all kinds of things. He was the, basically one of the guys who oversaw that. Um, and so Chandler is of this pedigree. He is uh, he's an accomplished historian and uh, he basically wanted to be a historian from his early days in life. And uh, he did serve in World War II. And then he uh, went back to Harvard and became a part of sort of the MIT and Johns Hopkins and MIT, and uh, I'm sorry, and Harvard Business School track. So he was bouncing around between these different colleges for a long time, teaching, writing, conducting courses, conducting research studies. Um, and because of his family history, he really, really wanted to be um, a sort of uh, archivist or personal historian to the DuPont family. Um, he, he didn't quite ever go that far. He did write several books that basically told pieces of the story of the DuPont family. Um, he ultimately really found, he spent most of his time writing about broader issues. Um, he had his primary trilogy that he wrote over the course of his life. Uh, he wrote some other books. Um, I think some people that I've, you know, I, I haven't read them, but I've talked to people who have read them that they're not very good he wrote two books before he died. I mean, normally when these guys are that old, they're not even really writing their books. Um, but he wrote two books that kind of came out in the early 2000s. One was about the electronics industry, and one was about um, the chemical and pharmaceutical industries, which is kind of his, I think in part, the story he always wanted to tell about the real history of DuPont. Um, but over the course of his life, he really focused on 
uh, three primary books. And those primary books were uh, Strategy and Structure, The Visible Hand, and Scale and Scope. Uh, and he wrote these books over the course of a, like a, a 20, almost 28th, almost 30 year long period. And the point of these books is basically a, a broad spectrum analysis of the history of American commerce. And uh, they're all very good. I've read pieces of strategy and structure, and I've read pieces of uh, scale and scope. Visible Hand is the one that I've actually read in fall. And um, I will just say off the bat, it's an extremely good book. It um, is definitely a book written by a guy who is not exactly any kind of uh, revisionist historian, or he's not exactly going to be a guy who is going to give you some kind of hidden knowledge uh, I think that he is a he's an effective writer. The book is not boring at all, and it really covers um, the transformation of the American economy from the early days, and even the, so, the pre-industrial, the, the pre-revolutionary days of colonial America to the end of the Gilded Age and the beginning of the 1920s. So he covers this broad spectrum of time and how uh, American commerce across pretty much all industries changes and some of the underlying facets therein. Um, Visible Hand in particular is uh, is widely regarded as his most important work. If you ever search for him, it'll come up as uh, the number one result or the first book generally. Uh, and that's because it, it's uh, it's a book that's actually often found in MBA courses. Um, it's sort of a, a must read as part of any kind of um, business history curriculum or acumen. Um, and I think it's it serves as that because he sort of pioneered a way in which you could write um, non technically about. American business history and commercial history without getting too into the details, but also being very, very um, straightforward and uh, and fleshing out of important figures and dates and and processes. So uh, off the bat, I would say if you, if you're interested in any of that, you know, the the book is on LibGen. You don't have to pay for it. If you want to pay for it, it's a very nice, simple looking book. And uh, it'll look nice on your bookshelf. And you won't be bored with it. I guarantee you, you will learn at least something new that you've never learned before. If only because the broad spectrum analysis of the industries that he covers, pretty much every industry, you will inevitably learn something you never just came across before. Um, And the book was released in the 1970s. Well, to that point, Hans. Well, go ahead. You you have read this book. Uh, what is it uh, that you learned that was most surprising to you? Well, one of the interesting things I learned uh, was that his uh, his take is that the managerial revolution in American business um, has been going on since the Second Bank of the United States in the early nineteenth century, and that. 
really the second bank of the United States, which is a forerunner to the Federal Reserve, um, pioneered some aspects of the American managerial business model and the wider management of the economy that would become sort of the standard throughout, uh, especially the Reconstruction era and very well into the Gilded Age and uh, sort of the, the oligarch era of America. Um, that it was, when you it was, say managerial and when the author says managerial, mm-hmm. do you mean this in the Burnham sense of it's the managers of capital rather than the actual owners who are making decisions with respect to um, allocation, production, yes. organization? That's, that's the central thesis, yes. So the central, the, the, the primary um, breakdown, we'll get into it. So uh, Chandler basically looks at American his business history um, in as pre-1840 and post-1840. And that the 18, early 1840s are really where some processes that were already underway become fully, uh, fully fleshed out, th- mostly through necessity is his view of why the American business cultural landscape became um, heavily managerialized and heavy fin- heavily financialized. And a lot of this parallels the rise of the commercial and merchant banking sector, the insurance sector, um, the growth of large single family ownership of primary pieces of infrastructure or entire industries or entire methodologies. And that the only way to account for this sort of disparate ownership and only way to account for the uh, burgeoning financial assets being created to sort of underpin a lot of this industrial growth was to create um, a sort of management of the economy through managerial methodologies that became standard so that um, the economy functioned in a mostly standard way wherever you went across it so that you could then kind of comport it together and build a general idea of how to run the American economy. Because post-1840, you have a couple key um, key developments. Number one, the commercial banking sector uh, effectively takes off. And for the first time, you have homegrown uh, commercial banks, um, some of whom still have ties to London, uh, but many of whom do not. And you have a real commercial banking industry in New York, Philadelphia, parts of Delaware, parts of the South, and they effectively are coordinating capital resources. They're picking industries to finance. They're picking suppliers. They're trying to cobble together entire supply chains through financing. Um, And so in order to interface with all that financial flow in order to manage all that financial flow, the commercial banking sector of the United States begins to pioneer managerial subunit breakdowns. In other words, the the concept of the org chart is effectively created. Um, And it's, again, just through a matter of necessity, the complexity of the resource management and the financial assets tied to that resource management into that industrial process management was too complex at a certain level. 
Uh, no longer could you have um, what he kind of describes as merchant capitalism, family capitalism, and owner capitalism, and they all kind of cross-pollinate. They can both be their own separate things and kind of mesh together depending on the industry or depending on the person. Um, but ultimately, they're all very personal things. But the, the fact of the matter is that you cannot have a merchant style or family style um, commercial bank in the in like the the style of a of a very simple and, and uncomplicated Venetian double book accounting methodology, which many of these small companies and small proprietorships were still utilizing those very same techniques from the medieval era, well into early nineteenth century America. Um, you can't you cannot have that when you're managing resources that complicated. When you have the commercial banking sector trying to figure out how exactly do we get the railroad industry off the ground, how do we get the telegraph industry off the ground, and how do we get the textiles off the ground, and how do we get them to a point where they can be, they can have mass production, they can interface with insurance, they can interface with labor requirements, they can interface with their state governments. Well, the only way you can do that is you can do that inefficiently. And you can lose out intensely on your transactional costs. And in other words, you can outsource every aspect of that to a network of sole proprietorships and families and merchants who will kind of cobble together a solution for you. Or you create a managerial hierarchy and you create managers who own, who effectively own subunits and responsibilities of capital and utilization thereof, who then report to a higher subunit and utilization of capital, who kind of takes the money from the owner or the investor or the bank and then puts it to work under certain orders, but inevitably will kind of grow into their own power and start making decisions um, for themselves. And so that's really the basis of how you know the commercial banking sector and attempting to, I think, realizing that America, you know, the United States had a had a really grand industrial future if we could just figure out how to organize it all, um, created the managerial hierarchies, which then took on a life of their own, and that became. You know, the, I think that one of the things that Chandler works through in the book is this notion of like the the the, the eternal war in in business or the, in the commercial world has been between capital and labor, um, and it's a lot more complicated than that. And that reality is that you have these convergent, almost like convergent evolution, where no matter where you go, no matter what you end up starting. Inevitably, if it gets big enough um, and complicated enough, you will have a managerial structure that's created to manage the complexity internally so that you don't lose out on market transaction costs. And that will take on a life of its own. And then it will take on interests of its own. And so really, the you know, managerial capitalism it creates this far more complicated view of the world than just its capital versus labor. It's like it's the evil rich guy versus the, the working guy. Like, it, you know, it's 
far more complicated than that. And generally, the, the real power brokers, the unwitting power brokers often of the American industry, um, even today, are people with managerial responsibilities. At public companies, at complicated private companies, NGOs, governments, all of it. Any organization basically takes on that model. Does he have a theory as to why this is seemingly a particularly American way of organization? Uh, I have my own theories. Um, I'll withhold them. But, you know, you take a, a rapidly expanding country like the United States and maybe compare it to a country like Russia, which also has sort of this frontier that they were trying to conquer with their Trans-Siberian Railroad, which um, may have actually happened after the American one, which didn't happen until after the Civil War even. But nonetheless, the concept of industrial growth opportunities would seemingly, just at least from a resources perspective, be quite possible in a place like Russia just as much as it did in the United States, uh, which had a, a comparable, uh, if not even smaller amount of resources uh, at its disposal to fuel an industrial uh, revolution or growth. Uh, why is it particularly American, this type of uh, managerialism and this, uh, this style of managing and organizing uh, seems to have grown from does he have a theory do you have a theory um he has he he kind of provides a, a general theory uh indirectly and i think from that i can give you my theory um throughout the book chandler um makes it very clear multiple points that the underlying basis for the american worldview um, is rooted in the Anglo-Dutch commercial worldview. Whether you like it or not, that is the reality. And the founders of the country were very well aware of that. Um, there's actually a, a couple people who have recently pointed out that uh, I think John Adams, second president of the United States, his library is technically online or there's a, there's a catalog of his library. And one, he, the man owned like 2,000 books. But one of the things that, uh, one of the subjects that John Adams was most interested in were the uh, corporate and trading charters of the Venetian Republic in medieval Italy. Uh, and I think he was interested in that. And they were interested, all interested in that in general. Um, and so were the English and so were the Dutch who both had modeled pieces of their East India companies and their sort of joint stock corporations and their sovereign immunity status for all kinds of uh, or, you know, proto-corporate enterprises, if you want to call them that. Um, they were all taking from this medieval concept uh, that had been pioneered in places like Venice, uh, the medieval concepts of English land management, uh, the medieval concepts of, of Dutch guild management, Dutch banking management, German guild and banking management. Um, so they're all kind of pulling from the same um, cultural milieu when they're thinking of how to build an economic system. Okay, that's number one. Why is it a uniquely American thing? It's not totally uniquely American thing. 
it is something you will find in people that are very much like Americans, Canadians, British broadly, so Canadians, Dutch, and Germans, to an extent the French. You will find that same sort of convergent evolution of ideas and management of businesses between those major cultures because they share a similar cultural history in how they approached the development of commercial law, the development of common law, the development of guilds, the development of tradecraft, the development of metallurgical management, the, the development of small family plant farming, you know, all, all of this sort of stuff, land allocation. All these countries and in, in Americans are, are practicing broadly similar ideas. In Britain, a little bit different at home in some cases, sure. Um, but generally, the ideas are, this, are similar to each other. Now, I think that the American system takes off particularly because of a couple advantages that the United States has. So one of the things that Chandler lays out in the book, uh, and this is a thesis that you'll see elsewhere, although because he wrote the book in 77, um, he might have been the first to kind of really at least put the ideas together. Uh, the United States has had uh, has a ge- geographic advantages, cultural advantages, and demographic advantages. Um, And so in order to expand your economy rapidly, you need those things. You need a a group of mostly similar smart people. You need a culture that basically forces one to constantly necessitate the need for sustenance and growth. And you need uh, natural resources space to spread out, things to do. Well, the U.S. has all of that. So unlike Britain, which, uh, or the, which you know, had severe hierarchical issues in how it was being managed, you could argue that Britain, uh, the, the British lord system, uh, especially post-Gromwell, and the British management of land and title was itself a managerial, a proto-managerialized system with sub-components and sub-management and hierarchies and, you know, sort of dishing out of responsibilities and pieces of the national capital. Um, things were different in the United States. You know, basically just had people getting land and then doing something with it or just buying a property and then you do something with it or then you, you buy something and you do something with it. No regulations. No one gives a shit what you're doing with your time. So when you pile that all together... You're able to do whatever you want very quickly. So when you're expanding very rapidly, you're able to then rapidly say, okay, how we've reached a certain point. By 1840, we have the first railroads. We have the telegraph. We have exploited the, uh, successfully started to exploit in an industrialized fashion, the mines of Appalachia and Northern Pennsylvania and Eastern Pennsylvania. And so the metallurgical complex of pieces of the United States is now being exploited, and so you have the the capability for large-scale industry. Not only that, but you have an intense demand um, to uh, basically take the resources of the United States, 
which are the internal horizontal waterways, uh, the flatlands, easy growing space, lots of land to develop buildings for what we I think today would think of as commercial real estate or commercial infrastructure for factories, shops, whatever. Um, you take all that together and you say, okay, well, God, we need a way to manage all of this. Like we can't just have Joe Schmo cobble together the resources for a railroad if he can, and then just sort of run it. And there's no management. We don't know what people are doing on the railroad. We don't know what trains are doing. We don't know where it's stopping. We don't know how to build people. You know, we don't really have a broader idea of what this railroad is bringing us economically as a country. It's traveling across state lines, but we can't say that it's bringing iron ore from Tennessee to Ohio or from or cotton from South Carolina to Massachusetts to be turned into uh, clothes at like the Lowell uh, or the the Lowell manufacturing plant and all this sort of stuff. Um, So when you've rapidly expanded that quickly and you have all these resources at your disposal and you've built all these things, then you have to think, well, how do, what do we do with it all? How do we kind of cobble this together and how do we make that next leap? Because no one had ever, figured out how to make that next leap economically. How do you build a, a national economic system? Like No one had ever really figured that out yet. And, a national industrial economic system that is not, that doesn't have slave labor. I mean, I guess you have slave labor in a very small aspect of it, but it's not as if it's the entire country are just being bossed around because they're, you know, feudal servants or something like that. So how do you do that? Well, the only way in which you can really do that is to either um, pay a ton of money and lose a ton of time and resources and, and gain a lot of inefficiency by just letting lots of individuals and small merchants control little grifts or control little pieces of the supply chain or control little pieces of the vendorship or control little pieces of the manufacturing process or the farming process or the wholesale process, whatever. Or you kind of consolidate. You do what the merchants used to do in bulk with a bit of precision, mathematical precision, and you coordinate. And that was the model that the United States took. The United States, both purposefully and I think just through necessity and realization of some of the gains, um, went with this idea of it's better to coordinate. Better to generate real employment and generate real value with mathematical precision than entrust a network of merchants to deliver one thing to another, which is really how the economy worked in the colonial era for the most part. Uh, and it's how the economy worked in pieces well into the Civil War. There were pieces of the American economy that took forever to get going. Um, one of the primary pieces of the American economy that Chandler brings up that, that really did not get off the ground properly was ironically the mining industry. The mining industry in America was so crucially important. And America was 
blessed. North America was just blessed with uh, lots of seaports, lots of internal waterways, so you could easily get imported metal from one place to another, and lots of metal at home that you could easily mine. I mean, now we're starting to really reach the limits of what is feasibly and economically viable to mine. But in the in the mid-18th century, well into the mid-19th century, mining was kind of a haphazard, slapped-together operation. And you had lots of sort of merchant versions of ironmongers and coppermongers who were, you know, finding various ways to jack up prices here or there or to only distribute to certain people or to generate certain kinds of deals in a supply chain with each other or control the market. Um, One of the points of the book, why it's called The Visible Hand, is that uh, in, in some aspects... Chandler is trying to show that many, many pieces of the market, quote-unquote, um, there is no sort of Adam Smithian invisible hand at work. If there ever was, it certainly was quickly smothered um, sometime beginning in the end of the colonial era in America. Because no matter what you had, you either had control of a market by merchants or control of a market by industrial interests with managerial hierarchies, or control of the market by a combination of government officials, or control of the market by coordination amongst smaller people. Whatever you, however you look at it, there's coordination. And there is no invisible hand of the market that is doing some kind of arcane price discovery methodology. Um, in the in the academic economic models that make some sense, I guess. Um, in the real world, it, that has never truly existed. What you do have are markets, but you do not have um, free markets. Or you don't have markets that sort of magically find one thing to go to another. Uh, the American civilization was not managed by magic. It was managed by men who made deliberate attempts to move resources from one place to the next and do something with them, which is broadly the point of the book. Uh, If anything, it is a case for national economic management uh, rather than some kind of flimsy, you know, uh, just let people do whatever they want sort of thing or, or, you know, some kind of case for, I think it tries to, sort of push back against the, these notions that were popular. Um, I'm, you know, we're not, we're definitely not popular by the time that Chandler released the book, but we're popular when people like Thomas Jefferson were president of the United States. Uh, this notion of the, um, the small family agrarian Republic sort of view, um, which probably would have been immediately trampled and overrun had there not been things like the Springfield Armory and uh, some of the textile manufacturers who were the one of the primary reasons why the United States even won the War of 1812 and was able to fend off Britain um, was because there was already that element of early managerial hierarchies in place for 
the armory industry, the machine tool industry, and the textile industry. So men could actually go fight with proper arms. I, I guess I'll add what my thoughts were on why America developed this kind of, uh, it wasn't called a master's in business administration, obviously in the 19th century, but it grew into that. I think by the time this guy was, was writing was his books, being, it was called being smart <laughs> back then. I mean, like, well, the, the, yeah. The and of like, but I, I, there was, there was the, uh, the, the, the scientific management, uh, craze, um, well, even, even prior to that, even prior to that, I mean, the scientific management stuff is, that is a Gilded Age thing. When, when you're, when you're looking, and that's a, like a late Gilded Age thing that really, when it really got going, uh, the, the Frederick Taylor stuff before that, I mean, you did have people that had, I guess, a formal education in commerce, um, to an extent, but generally, you just sort of learned as you went. And I think that one of the things to keep in mind that Chandler points out in the book is that one of the primary reasons we have MBAs now, and one of the things that really drives our, you know, you have a particular focus in managerial, hierarchical cogwheeling, which is what the MBA sort of prepares you for. The MBA does not prepare you to go run a business necessarily. It prepare or to like start your own. It prepares you to nominally take place in a large enterprise. Yeah, I, and, I think I think that's that's a fair critique or and, and assessment. He, he points out that okay, so the, one of the reasons why that is is that not really until the eighteen seventies and the eighteen eighties when we start to get um, real financial control methodology for the railroads in place, and we start having to come up with complicated financial and accounting methodologies for large-scale industrial production. Um, prior to that, financial and accounting services, managerial services um, were not complicated. And so you didn't need to go be specialized or particularly schooled in that. It was something you could literally learn in a year. If that, and you learned on the job, like you would basically have your senior manager who at, for a time was probably your dad <laughs> or like your uncle or your older brother, um, would sit you down and say, okay, here's how you do the books. And by the end of the day, you knew how to do the books and the books never got more complicated than that. It was mostly a function of how fast and how accurately you could write in the different columns and if you could do arithmetic. Um, and, you know, for things like the logistics management, scheduling, op the, op the general ops management, again, not that complicated. And it's mostly just a function of precise arithmetic with some levels of higher level math. The only places where you would even find complexity was if you were an engineer or if you were managing a shop. But the only reasons why you would even be managing a shop or be an engineer was if you were going to go into business for yourself. Because if you were an engineer or um, if you had any kind of high-level skill, you would just start your own shop at a, for a certain period of time. Like There was literally no reason not to. If you had that level of skill and education um, and int intellect, I, I have a question. 
Yeah. So, how much of this, uh, obviously a lot, but a lot of this is being attributed, rather, the changes in organization of production and commerce uh, as a result of complexity, and to what extent is it factored in that this is a process that allowed the owners of capital to be isolated or shielded from responsibility uh, in a similar way that you see in politics, namely the the owners, for lack of a better term, of the American system are... The, the donors. They have, yeah. have several... Yeah, they have several... Uh, several lackeys between them and the people they're ruling over to shield them uh, in the event and redirect the people's anger towards the managers effectively of the system. Does that carry over also into this analysis of, of business specifically? Because it's definitely a factor in politics. Yes, I would say that there was an aspect, you're right, to remove some level of responsibility. Although I think on some level it, he doesn't necessarily attribute it to that per se. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll say why I think that is. Chandler is not a guy who's, you know, well, okay. Let me add one thing you talk about like DuPont family and stuff. Like a lot of the names that were big in, in American capital, at the early 20th century. Some have stuck around, uh, you know, I mean, J.P. Morgan still, etc. DuPont nominally exists. I think it actually just got acquired or whatever. It's, I, I think, I getting uh, split up into three the names, or something. Yeah, okay. Well, the, the names associated with the early American capitalists, uh, really oligarchs, you know, the, whatever, the 500 most influential and powerful families... Uh, the ones that also bred with the Jews, uh, they, the names associated with the enterprises gradually started to go away and it became a lot more things resembling almost front companies. Whereas a lot yeah, of them, they were still I, controlling. I, I, I see what you're, I see what you're getting at. And I think I see what you're getting at. And so let me just say, you're not you're not going to find him directly say that in the book. He there's definitely you can read into it and then you can kind of percolate in your other histories of America and come to that conclusion for sure that there is a process here by which there's a front company aspect, yes, there's a there's an integration aspect and then there's a removal of an a removal and obfuscation of ownership. And the, he does lay out that very clearly by the 1870s, the prominence of the small family firm is, is dead. And the idea you are going to necessarily know the owner of a company is less likely. I, I think and this is more of a product of, of Wall Street pressure, at least these days, yeah, yeah. Uh, than well, I mean, actually in, the in owners ironically wanting to insulate themselves from uh, the, the unwashed masses. I think one thing that's uh, unique in American finance, especially in the venture finance world, is that the investors will move very quickly to remove the founder of a company unless 
there's an exceptional person at the helm. Uh, but many startups uh, typically will receive funding and then very quickly lose their founder as the executive. Uh, they'll be replaced very quickly. Um, and I think that's that, that's partially just for the investors to be able to control things, obviously, uh, more easily. And then back in this era, uh, you do see people like J.P. Morgan uh, operating this way where he would basically buy out companies and install uh, boards of directors and et cetera. Um, I'm not as familiar with all of the details of that era other than the larger concerns, but I think that... I think that really is really what's going on here. It's it's finance capital wanting to control its investments. And I think um, if I could just conclude my previous point I was trying to make about why America seems to have this uh, organization man mentality as opposed to maybe the old world where there was more, um, I don't know, more, more family ties and more, uh, more aristocratic connections and history connect, connecting you to capital. I think it was really just a, a much more rough and tumble, uh, open opportunity place. There was really fewer rules, uh, fewer institutions to govern all of this. And in order to manage such a large scale operation uh, and at the same time impose a very efficient system on top of it in which you could do a standard standardized system as opposed to in some country like Germany that's got like a, a a hundred little different kingdoms uh, amongst its empire that uh, uh, had just been unified under Bismarck. You you basically can speak all the same language. You've got uh, the same standards and measures. Uh, there's there's really not a lot of local uh, opposition to imposing a, a a national standard for something. I think it it just made more sense for a rapidly growing uh, system and country that didn't have a lot of institutional inertia to get in the way. Um, so that was, that was kind of like my theory as to why America spawned this type of organization. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with, I agree with everything you're saying there, there you made a point, um, about institutions. Um, I was listening to someone the other day who said something along the lines of, um, because America is such a young country, there's a lot of freedom. There's very little institutions. And it's uh it's a it's beautiful in that sense. It's a it's a wild country. <laughs> and um in many ways I think that the the industrial conglomerates and business and and engineering and worksman, worksmanship and the family farming, all of these things together are the institutions of America in a lot of ways. Um, you know, uh, you can go to an Italian city and walk on cobblestone streets that are um, older than the United States by a factor of two or three. Uh, and they're still maintained by some kind of organization with all these ephemeral ties to the same organization that built the cobblestone street seven, 800 years ago. Um, and you just don't have that in the United States. But what you have is, is a, is an attempt to get to that. And so I think that there is a process by which the U S is still a, a young country. Now, I think that many of the, the 
and and because we're a young country, we're still trying to build these institutions and our fascination and, and work on doing this stuff is, um, uh, was so rapid and, and, um, uh, enveloped because we didn't really have any major institutions to go with. Um, religion is a broadly personal and community thing, somewhat of an ethnic thing for Americans. Um, the other, other major institutions are mostly ephemerally and ephemerally cultural and tangential. So this is one of the things that Americans could just work on. It's almost a culture. Um, is the movement of goods and the the crafting of materials. Uh, so, I mean, it's Promethean in that sense, I suppose. Uh, there, you can even find like old Dupont ads talking about the Promethean American man. <laughs> it's like crafting the materials of the gods to uh, to uh, to bring about um, I don't know domination and uh, and power. There's a there's a passage here. I'd like to read a few passages from the book so people actually believe that I read the book. I'm not just making stuff up. Um, this is a... And I think this this particular one speaks to what you guys are... are were you particularly talking about, Adam? The development of top management methods and procedures in the early managerial firms marked the culmination of an organizational revolution that had its beginning in the 1850s with the railroads. The process of production and distribution, the methods by which they were managed, the enterprises that administered them, and the resulting structure of the industries and the economy itself all were, by World War I, much closer to the ways of the 1970s than they were to those of the 1850s or to even those of the 1870s. A businessman of today would find himself at home in the business world of 1910, but the business world of 1840 would be a strange, archaic, and a arcane place. So, too, the American businessman of the 1840s would find the environment of 15th century Italy far more familiar than that of his own nation 70 years earlier. The history of the modern multi-unit business enterprise after World War I becomes an extension of the story already told there. It consists of the refinements in the existing processes and procedures and the continuation of the basic trends that appeared before 1917. This is not to say that these later developments were not complex, innovative, and significant. But World War I marks the proper point for bringing close a detailed examination of the beginnings and early growth of modern business enterprise. But if we go back a little bit before then, I think that that's a pretty good summation of what you were saying, that uh, the rough-and-tumble ways would be far more familiar to, uh, honestly, just a, an older breed of American um, in, you know, early 1840. He would, he would recognize, that businessman would recognize 15th century Venetian Italy and the business practices therein because, quite honestly, he was using those business practices. If he was a merchant or a metal worker or even owned a small shop or, or owned a, even a bank. Um, those practices in that scale would make sense to him. The, the scale and the practices that would then come later, uh, I think were a, a very, very powerful endeavor of Americans to create something bigger, but also, uh, as Nick was saying, really did end up divorcing the concept of the businessman from, uh, I think really created the idea of the businessman. 
You know, prior to that, you were just the owner. You were just the guy who did this thing. That was your specialty. Owning a bank was not a particularly um, lavish affair in the 1820s. If you owned a small bank, you were probably worse off than the guy who owned the blacksmith. (laughs) You had more people who were mad at you all the time. You probably had less real assets in any given moment. Um, and your responsibilities were much higher and a little bit more complicated. Um, but today we think of a banker as a guy who works at a bank and he does certain functions that a bank does that a guy in 1820 would have done all by himself as part of his daily routine or as his daily functions of owning a bank and the role that he served in a local or maybe slightly broader economy. Um, to, to Nick's point though, about the DuPonts and like the obfuscation of ownership. So like I said, Chandler is allegedly not related to, but a member of the DuPont family effectively. Um, so he is not going to be giving a critical view of the DuPont family. He does give an interesting view of it though. And he does say here in 1917, Few American industrial enterprises had as a modern as modern in management as DuPont. Many of the mergers were in the manner of the United States rubber, still slowly working out such administrative structures and procedures. A number of those enterprises that had grown by internal expansion rather than merger were still controlled by entrepreneurs who created them or by their descendants. Within a generation, however, the types of management begun at General Electric and perfected at DuPont had become standard for the administration of modern large-scale enterprise in American history. Uh, And he goes on to say, In carrying out these methods, DuPont, General Electric, and to a lesser extent, Standard Oil, U.S. Rubber, and U.S. Steel improved on existing methods of administrative coordination. In devising ways to perform other functions of good distribution, these firms were innovators. But he does go on to point out that one of the things that marked the most influential and the most powerful of the firms that were pioneering these methods is that broadly, these were firms that for a long time were directly managed by the original owner. And particularly well, Standard Oil is yeah, the most particularly the case of Standard Oil. Rockefeller did a lot, and he was the main guy. And the history of J.D. Rockefeller is fascinating because, in a lot of ways, uh, he kind of epitomizes the um, the oligarch villain of America. I think. He's almost like a cartoon character. I feel bad for him in some ways because I think he just... <laughs> uh, he, he's the original Mr. Burns. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will say, it took a lot of balls to be the head of Standard Oil, especially once he had 90% of the market. Like He was he was the man who ran America's oil industry, and he made everything... He was, but he, he was also a bastard. And he was, he, he was uh, a complete bastard, but... Yeah, and he also, there's quotes of him saying things like, I, I couldn't run this place without, you know, the standard men. And he yeah. did work very hard at cultivating his team, which is a mark of a good leader. Um, and he relied upon them to do what he wanted, but it was... Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a system that worked very well because I think it had a good leader, ultimately. I mean, you, you, these things don't come out of nowhere. So I think you're right. He was instrumental in that. Yeah. Well, and then he, you know, he goes on to say, at DuPont, owners still managed in 1917. <laughs> Pierre and his brothers maintained control through an intricate network of holding companies. Nevertheless, the only DuPonts to serve on the executive committee were experienced managers, graduates of MIT, or other engineering schools. They had spent years with the company. In fact, Pierre's insistence that no DuPont serve in middle or top management unless he was fully qualified helped to bring him on a bitter family fight. Even so, the seven men on the executive committee from its beginning included three or four non-family members. By the 1930s, top management outnumbered the family on the DuPont board. In recent years, DuPont, so long cited as a preeminent family firm, has become managerial. Today, literally hundreds of DuPonts and DuPonts in law are eligible to serve as managers, yet only a tiny handful work for the company. Only one DuPont now serves in the ranks of top management. The family continues to enjoy a substantial share of the company's profits. Five or six members sit on the company's 25-man board, Still owners, DuPonts no longer manage. They no longer make significant industrial decisions. Uh, and then he goes on to say, Nevertheless, in 1917, the modern industrial enterprise still had structural weaknesses and the managerial class is only beginning to become professionalized. The centralized, function, functionally departmentalized form developed as DuPont at DuPont and other early managerial enterprises had two serious faults. First, administrative coordination of flows was only crudely collaborated to short-term fluctuations of demand. Second, in the centralized, functionally departmentalized organizations, top managers responsible for long-term allocations continued to concentrate on day-to-day operations. This was true even at DuPont, where the functional vice presidents on the executive committee were specifically responsible for overall company affairs, and their directors were those for those of their functional departments. Despite repeated admonitions from Coleman and then Pierre DuPont, these top managers preferred to give priority to the more immediate problems and issues of departmental operations than to what seemed vague and less pressing concerns, long-term planning and appraisal. As specialists, these top executives nearly always continue to judge the company policy from the point of view of their specialties and their departments. So you have this interesting um, facet here to what Nick is saying at this point. Uh, I think the DuPonts really epitomize this. They're just out of the game. Um, but you have, a, you have a, a level of obfuscation. And there was a period where no one really knew what to do long term. Um, managers and even what we would think of as C-suite today were kind of just going through the motions. They were servicing the immediate functional needs. The irony of that facet is that in a broader scale and externally, that is how the American economy functioned to some extent in the colonial era where people are just sort of going about their day-to-day business. 
long-term planning, for the most part, is not part of the equation. It's not for lack of intellect. It's not for lack of trying. It's just not part of the equation. If you're a blacksmith, you are specially suited for blacksmithing and for shop management and for all the other responsibilities there. Are you thinking long-term about where the black and blacksmithing industry is going to be in 30 years? Are you thinking about market conditions? Are you thinking of broader policy? Are you thinking of research and design? Are you thinking of this? Are you thinking of that? Eh, probably not. Probably in passing. Maybe a little bit. Maybe you integrate that a little bit into what you're doing. Uh, but you're Well, not- really, only at scale yeah. does any of that justify the time it takes to figure all that out. Right. Because, yeah, sure, you could... Uh, you could optimize your little blacksmith shop around the uh, the likely movements in the commodities market. But in the meantime, you know, you're like the chief uh, producer uh, and you don't have time to really uh, put all that mental space into uh, figuring that out. And if you did, you, you couldn't make anything. And so literally your business would be out of business. So you have to have a certain scale that can support that kind of uh, intellectual class, for lack of a better phrase to think of those things. And so I think, again, this is why America has this advantage of just having this massive scale where people can start making these actual grandiose plans. Whereas if you're just some little uh, blacksmith in uh, the the Czech Republic or whatever the hell that was called back then, you know, 200 years ago. Bohemia. uh, (laughs) Bohemia, exactly. Yeah, like there's really no point. Well, Uh, you know... You you could uh, you could increase your output from uh, two ingots to three ingots, as opposed to uh, in America you can increase your output from uh, two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand, and suddenly that's a huge amount of money, and so it's worth putting uh, four or five guys from MIT on that. Whereas if you're just some little dinky guy, you know you'll never re- recoup the investment. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I agree, and I think that. What I, I was trying to get to was that when you are, or when we're in kind of this, I don't know, transitory phase of, okay, we're kind of removing the ownership class at these broader industry-wide large-scale conglomerates. Like the owners are fading into the background. They're making money off of it, but they're not making the day-to-day big decisions they're out of the game in some cases they're out of the game because they're lazy in some cases they're out of the game because they got forced out of the game like rockefeller um in some cases they just gave up in some cases they transferred it to other people thinking they would do something better like carnegie uh however you slice it they're out they're not making those big decisions so there's not really there's not a stagnation but there's a question of how do you make that next step? So, okay, we've built these large-scale organizational management structures, and we, we've successfully integrated it into the physical world, into production, into hardware, into the arithmetic and the complexities of financial accounting and managerial accounting and all these sorts of things. Okay, we've integrated that all together. Now what? Because it was all done as a result of making big decisions. And then when you make a big decision, you need to build the infrastructure to carry out the decision. 
The decisions leading up to this transitory period are like, you know, we need a lot of railroads. We want to give every American a house or an apartment. We want to, you know, provide Americans the ability to travel. Uh, we want to provide Americans water infrastructure. We want to provide Americans access to food very quickly. They don't have to live near the food. Uh, all these things we want to provide electricity, we want to provide telegraphing, we want to provide books and clothes. And okay, so we've done all that. Now what? And he kind of, I think Chandler kind of builds up to that World War I in the creation of the American Empire was then in really the, uh, the technological age taking off in a large sense was the final frontier for, that's when it kind of ends the book in like around the 19, early 1920s. Because at that point, you know, we were sort of living and still living in that post-1920 era of the managerial structure, the modern business structure is here to stay. It hasn't gone anywhere in 90 years. Uh, actually, it's been 100 years now, so it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, in fact, it's become more entrenched. basically runs all aspects of day-to-day modern life. Yeah, that, that brings me a question as to, does, in the context of this book, or curious to your guys' takes on it as well, uh, the impact of the industrial war state on production process, because I mean, you can't get around it. Uh, and I've read many people identify this, especially in the second war, the long-term effects that this had had on the American capitalist system. I mean, it's it's definitely the first time in American history where you had uh, strong top-down planning elements being incentivized. To well, I would say that, the Civil War, too. Well, yeah, but so what Nick is saying, yeah, um, the response was yet more organization. Um, here's a good quote. So he talks about what happens after World War One. So after World War One, the American economy like has this temporary recession um it's just like all these it's it, like no one had really figured out how to this is the first major war america's ever fought so. you need another war yeah we need another war <laughs> um but he does have this he has a couple interesting quotes here uh the sharp recession following World War One had a shattering impact on many of the new industrial marketing companies, new and new industrial and marketing companies. The majority had been established after the Depression of the 1890s. Most industrials that began before 1893, such as the meat packers and American Tobacco, were at the time of that depression still developing operational procedures. The sudden and continuing drop in demand from the summer of 1920 until the spring of 1922 was therefore the first period of hard times that the modern business enterprise had to face. The recession dramatically indicated the need to be able to adjust flows readily to changes in demand. It also made clear through an less obvious manner the failure of top managers to plan effectively. Senior executives still deeply involved in day-to-day operations had not foreseen or made plans to handle a slackening of demand. 
This slowdown in demand caught both mass marketers and large and integrated industrials by surprise. Even enterprises like the Meatpackers, who coordinated supply and demand by constant telegraph and telephone communication, had difficulties. Few adjusted inventory quickly enough. Armour's losses in 1920-1921 forced J. Ogden Armour, the son of founder Philip D., to lose control of the family firm and to see it transformed from an entrepreneurial to a managerial enterprise. The mass retailers, with their dependence on high stock turn, had comparable problems. Sears Roebuck was saved from defaulting on payments to suppliers only when its president, Julius Rosenwald, drew on his family's personal fortune to cover these accounts. The large integrated manufacturers and processors and chemical and mechanical industries were a much longer period of time as required to get costly materials through the processes of production and distribution had the greatest difficulty of all. Few could, as did Henry Ford, pass the burden of carrying unsold inventory onto their dealers. Ford was able to Ford was able to force his dealers to buy and pay for cars they did not sell or they could not sell by threatening to cancel their valuable franchises. Far more manufacturers had to follow General Motors' example and drastically write down the value of their overstocked inventory, and many of them went through self-cannibalizing processes similar to the Armour family. General Motors... At the General Motors, these inventory write-downs in 1921 and 22 amounted to over $83 million. Today, that would be in the billions. It, it would be like a, a wipeout. They'd lose the whole division, basically. Um, this is also an interesting quote. So in General Motors and Sears Roebuck, as well as DuPont, General Electric, U.S. Rubber, and other large enterprises responded to the inventory crisis of 1920 and 1921 by developing techniques that set and adjusted their flows to carefully forecast future demand. At General Motors and DuPont, the reorganizers went further. They created what has become known as the multidivisional structure. In this type of structure, autonomous divisions continue to integrate production and distribution by coordinating flows from suppliers to consumers in different, clearly defined markets. These divisions, headed by the middle managers, administer their functional activities through departments organized along the lines of those at General Electric and DuPont. At General Office of Top Managers, assisted by large financial and administrative staffs, supervise these multifunctional divisions. Um, and so the general process at work here is that a lot of people who really just reoriented their companies. A lot of kind of even small time people or mid-level corporations or some of the few left standing large conglomerates with uh, family ownership, they got wiped out and they were forced um, to become financialized. uh, And the owners became stock owners. The owners became shares of equity owned by commercial banks. The owners became a sort of amorphous board of directors, um, or they just went private and they had a managerial structure that would recruit from some revolving door of C-suite executives. And, um, you know, the kind of structure of corporate life that we see today really gets it going in 1921 and 22, um, 
because so much of the American economy had been so swiftly reorganized as the next big thing uh, for World War I. And a lot of our critical industry was kind of left, uh, not to rot, but left in the hands of uh, many people who had nothing to do with building it up. In some ways, it was a wealth and capital, physical capital transfer to the non-original ownership class and to the new ownership class. Um, And the new ownership class was a a mix of, like I said, banks, directors, investors, and managers, um, and family trusts, I suppose. I mean, what do we think about this? Like, if we can just offer our opinions, it's like, is it better to have... This, uh, I don't know, one might call it egalitarian structure where uh, people from outside the founding stock get a chance to run the uh, gears of production, or is it better to have the original creators, the Promethean spark originators, controlling everything to the end of time? I mean, I, I would say that... Um, it hasn't really worked out well just looking at things today I think that on some level you can say and I think I think that the DuPont family is just emblematic of this here you have a family that for no reason at all I mean they could have they could have kept on top of the company um, and they didn't their laziness and there's an element there of I think eternal. Uh, that, that's 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 debatable. I think. Well, can, well let me let me finish can my- the genius of the founder be passed on to his children? I mean, look at what happened with Henry Ford and his son. And he was perennially disappointed in his son Edsel, and it was sort of not Edsel's fault, but he didn't have Henry Ford's drive. Uh, and the Ford family, I think, is an interesting one too because they have not held on to the management of their company. Uh, for better or for worse, but there are very few companies where the the son or the grandson of the founder is still running the show. There are a few, uh, more common in Europe actually, but um, it's like you know the can you pass on? Can you clone yourself? I, I don't think you can. I think there's a reversion to mean that happens. So. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of revealing my opinion here. It's like I think maybe the. Uh, I mean, yeah. If if I could throw my my few cents in there, I would just say that looking at history of American industry, it seems to me that you had basically yeah some people who sometimes had really some good ideas or were creative people. They were able to build something, but it ended up becoming turning into some kind of monopoly institution. And really all that was left was for people to manage this monopoly institution and extract rent. And, you know, increasing as the 20th century went on, uh, the real value in these institutions was the extent to which they could partner with the system itself, the formal state, in order to further solidify these monopolies and just continue extracting rent. I mean, of course, like you're going to end up with just a bunch of pseudo bureaucratic managerial class to just maintain these the income from the rent. I mean, nobody 
make there there are no i mean the proof there is in the pudding and so far as nobody really creates anything new there isn't anything and it's all as adam frequently points out it's all just financialized now anyways which is like the perfect <laughs> the perfect conclusion for these people and that's like you don't even have to bother having coming up with a good idea to begin with you just come up with a good idea of how to extract fucking resources without doing anything else to begin with yeah yeah i think we'd all agree that's that's not what we want uh how do you how do you achieve otherwise i guess is the real challenge uh even if you did have the founding stock governing things i think you'll you'll end up with a, a possible situation where you have kind of this strange aristocracy that is witnessed in places like uh the united kingdom where the the royal family is really just a, a bunch of uh strange inbred people that uh really don't know how to run anything and I, I don't know i mean maybe maybe it could be done differently but i think you, you have the problem of human nature and and people just uh yeah wanting to be lazy and then how do you how do you design your system so that you can you can harness your people the, the mo most effectively to to bring your well, i think i think that's there in lies the answer the fact that you would even use the the word "design your system," I mean, there there lies most of the answer. I mean, you can't just let capital do whatever it wants. It's going to find a way to, to extract as much as it can and produce as, as little as it can. Yeah. So, and, and what you obviously need, I mean, to me, it's a simple, simple answer. You you need a state that is going to harmonize the interests of the people who are managing with the interests of the country. I mean, the, you need people whose full-time purpose is to ensure that, that that's what happened. You know, um, just as a side point, uh, in the Third Reich, you know that it was illegal to have any equity stake in a company that you were responsible for regulating or participating in the in the management of? Just, just a point. Could you expand on that? So, so if you're uh, in charge of the FDA of Germany or something, you could not own the the sausage plant shares. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, you like, own shares in Zyklon B or precisely correct. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could in the lice removal. Of interest, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, IG Farben would be the company. Possibly. I think. <laughs> Well, I want to make yeah. a point. I want no, to. I mean, like you need. Well, go ahead, Nick. Sorry. Like, if you're going to do central planning, like that's the thing. Someone does. It ends up happening anyways, and it's just it's the manager. Is kind of the lesson I take from what Hans is talking about is that as complexity in the system increased, it was effectively the central planning became the managers. Like that, and that the result of that was central planning for the country as a whole. And so it, in a complex industrial society, it seems that central planning is an unavoidable conclusion. So you just, you need people to do the plan. It, it is. Planning who have the correct loyalties and the correct interests, you know? So it, yeah, I, I, I don't yeah. know. And, and I think, no, I'm, I'm with you. That's, that's how I look at it. At least. That's the point of the book. Ultimately. I mean, it, it draws a, I think that, uh, you know, we were chatting, Part of the show about uh, where it draws the line to burn them, 
because clearly the title is and the theme of the book is um, influenced by James Burnham, the, who wrote the managerial revolution in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s. Uh, I can't actually remember uh, the year it came out. I think it was, 40, early it was the 40s. 40s. Oh, okay. I, think was, I think it was like 40, 42 or 41 or something. Yeah. I thought it was earlier than that because weren't there like a ton of like goofy uh, Lenin and Stalin like Soviet quotes? There were other books that had approached the subject oh. in the 20s as far as I like. Oh, but okay. uh, yeah, Burnham. Well, this is something that got talked about a lot during World War II was this uh, managerial class. I mean, they even uh, called Albert Speer, who was the armaments minister in Nazi Germany, this organization man, this gray figure that doesn't have uh, kind of the notoriety that maybe a politician would, but he's actually instrumental in running everything. Uh, and that seems like 40s uh, concept. And th- this book came out in 41, according to my cursory internet searcher well i want to make um i guess my point was that uh i think that what chandler is trying to do by by we were just discussing this before the show what is the real link between james burnham and what chandler wrote here um and i will say that chandler does not really comment on burnham doesn't (laughs) uh i don't i mean he just doesn't really show up although he's very clearly drawing inspiration from him. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's some kind of um, academic squabble. Chandler's from like the old money Anglo academia who doesn't want to be associated with guys like Burnham, uh, whatever it is. Clearly he liked his ideas. But he in the early parts of the book, he does a great job, I think, describing... Well, I mean, Burnham was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think that. that, (laughs) I I think that Burnham was just a little too uh, too edgy for guys like Chandler. Although he clearly liked reading him, he's way stole his title. Um, But he does a good job describing what life was like in colonial and post-colonial America for the economy, and I think that it is an interesting portrait of what pre-planning, pre-central planning is like. And the ultimate point of the book, what I was saying before, is that, like you're saying, like planning is inevitable. And there is no invisible hand. When you create a certain level of complexity, you really have three options. Um, you can let an invisible hand materialize and probably stagnate. You can let it falter and then kind of recede back, or you can add more complexity and an even more visible hand and push forward. Um, and so there's really only those options. But he describes early America um, as a pretty simple place. In 1790, nearly all the families who raised or processed crops or goods lived on the same premises as they worked. The largest producers who lived and worked in the same place were, of course, the farmers, who accounted for close to 90% of the labor force. In the early 19th century, the family farm, which produced crops for the market, also raised much of its own food and manufactured its own furniture, soap, lye, 
metalworks, candles, leather, cloth, and clothing. In fact, goods manufactured in the home were often sold to neighbors in nearby towns. In 1810, the Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, estimated that about two-thirds of the clothing, including hoisery and the house and table linen worn and used by the inhabitants of these United States who do not reside in cities is the product of family manufacturers. In the seaboard cities and the small towns of the interior, manufacturers were largely artisans who lived above or near their shops. They worked as a specialized trade, as such as the making or processing of cloth. Spinners, weavers, tailors, makers of stockings, gloves, hats, and sails. Leather, tanners, shoemakers, harness makers, makers of furniture, carts, wagons, carriages, paneling, and clocks, smiths of gold, silver, copper, tin, blacksmiths and whitesmiths, gum makers and ironmongers, or clay and glass. Some artisans, especially journeymen who had not yet set up their own establishment, became internants during the warmer months, traveling from village to village and farm to farm in the practice of their trade. These, those few producers who worked outside the home lived in the towns and were concentrated in the building trades, construction homes, warehouses, commercial edifices, ships, and wharves. They too were artisans, painters, carpenters, masons, shipfitters, riggers, caulkers, and the like. Normally their work was supervised by a master carpenter or shipbuilder. And so you can kind of get this sense that the economy was very diffused. It was not complicated. And so you can see like the labor force is pretty diffused and the ownership of the primary means of production is in normal people's hands. And there are large scale activities going on. You do have industrial coordination. You do have the growing of, um, supply chains you do have banking sector kind of coming into its own um but it's not it's not this overly complex managerial um managerial structure um i will say there's a part here where he starts talking about the sort of the, the ways in which we start to move things around and even then it's not that complicated. Um, because they operated common carriers, railroads, unlike the major canal systems, became privately rather than publicly owned enterprises. And there is an interesting thing to, re to remark about the, the canals that he brings up throughout the book. Um, the, a lot of the canals and the internal waterways of the country had a, did have an interesting structure in which it was sort of operated at parts by the state but certain aspects of the enterprise, the financing of it, some engineering responsibilities, the operations of it, some pieces of the ownership um, were diffused across private hands. And so you did have families that would invest a significant amount of their own capital or pool together resources under their own name to then invest in building internal waterways. Um, for the United States across state lines so we could transport goods efficiently. Uh, and the same was true for the many of the roads, uh, early road structures. And even some of the early canals and, and water infrastructure, not the large-scale stuff, but some of the smaller-scale stuff. Um, anyways, you know, that, that came under real private ownership, but it was real ownership. 
Like you had a slight managerial structure to it all. You maybe had a few people that would do certain diffused responsibilities under your company or your corporation, um, but you would be granted a very limited corporate charter for only that specific purpose by your state government. So it, you were sort of limited by the government of the time and the complexity that was allowed at the time um, to only achieve certain ends. And that kind of, I think, prevented this managerial takeoff from, um, from happening. But, he go, but Chandler goes on. In the early years of the Republic, American merchants and shippers gave strong support to government construction and operation of costly rights of way. On the other hand, these businessmen rarely, if ever, pro- proposed that the government operate the common carriers. Only a small number of American railroads were initially operated by the state. And by 1850, with very few exceptions, these had been turned over to private business enterprises. These same merchants and shippers who distrusted government ownership were also fearful of private monopoly. Therefore, the charters of the early roads generally provided for close legislative oversight of these new transportation enterprises. This is also true of the lines connecting the several towns along the Erie Canal. In the south and west, railroads were longer because distances between towns were greater, but they carried fewer passengers and smaller amounts of freight. Until the 1850s, none of these great lines planned to connect the east with the west or were even close to completion. Before 1850, only one road, the western, which ran from Worcester to Albany, connected one major regional section of the country with another. Except for the Western, no railroad was long enough or busy enough to create complex operating problems. During the 1840s, the technology of railroad transportation was rapidly perfected, but the organizational structures were still not required. And so you kind of see here, we're not really at that point of complexity yet, and America is still operating almost this like serene, um, idealistic version of... Uh, a close approximation to like the, uh, the world described in uh, in Adam Smith's economic texts. Adam Smith, the British uh, economist, not our Adam Smith. Uh, and it's really, I think the United States had really, really come close to perfecting that model. And I think that there could there was plenty of room for a greater standard of living and a higher quality of life with a, a lot of elements of that model held together to the modern era um, or to our era today. But I think that part of the problem is that in the pursuit of increased complexity to conquer the continent, to you know, tame the elements uh, to master production, um, we really lost our capability to very cleanly and easily distribute ownership and means of capital production and, and a real sense of belonging in a wider economy. Um, you know, we, we just threw that, we threw a lot of that away. And I don't know if it was necessarily for the better, has it made our lives materially better in a lot of ways? Yes, und- undoubtedly. Um, that's the only reason I'm able to use this uh, app t- 
to talk to people over the computer necessarily and read books that were made in a printing shop on the other side of the world and, and all this sort of stuff and do it all at the same time. But uh, did we potentially lose a more efficient economic system? Did we potentially lose greater value? Do we maybe in administering the complexity actually lose out on real technological innovation? I think all that is, is yes, I think we did. Because the real, a lot of the technological innovation that made the industrial system and the post-industrial complex systems possible uh, were done by uh, small groups of men or single men with drive in America. And a lot of that was abandoned for just sort of day-to-day -day management. I think that when um, Chandler was describing the way in which at the before world war one everyone's just kind of going through the motions i mean we all have these very complicated ways in which we do it but the broader economy is being centered around going through the motions at least then going through the motions you could get industrial output today i don't i don't think you get anything i don't really know what we get we're sort of administering for the sake of administering um, we're administering to prevent collapse of administrative complexity. Uh, and so I don't necessarily know if ultimately we've made the, the necessary turn. And I think that at this stage, there needs to be a recognition of um, we could probably roll a lot of this back because our history shows us that we had a perfectly fine economy uh, and a perfectly fine way of life before we sort of enveloped ourselves in this uh, in this new endeavor. Yeah, I, I think it, it opens the broader question of has the United States reached a point where it is overly complex that is no longer sustainable? And if that is the case, and there is going to be a devolution of central power by simply the fact that the the system is crumbling uh take the uh, the continental east coast pipeline uh that's going on right now as as case in point uh i think you're gonna have a whether it's no by your ownership by the way that's just a product of dozens of mergers and acquisitions and integrations like it, it it's just sort of an amorphous yeah uh almost force of nature that just sort of permeates itself on some level from um from a financial and organizational perspective and it shows there's absolutely no one at the wheel when things go wrong you, you're just you're you're blaming the company <laughs> which doesn't yeah, mean it, anything it's, it's very difficult for accountability yes. when you have large organizations like this. I mean, everybody experiences this when there's a problem with their credit card, you know, they, they call the number on the back and they get somebody in another country. And then it takes uh, 10 escalations to get to somebody who understands your language, let alone the problem. And it's, um, it, it's, it's almost an ingenious system as sort of Nick was uh, implying that the owners kind of want to be insulated from uh, accountability uh, of their customers having problems uh, that you, you can never really find who's in charge. But on the flip side of that, 
when you depend on these systems and you can never find who's in charge and that person has done such a good job that uh or those those set of people have done such a good job of of obfuscating that that when you need them uh they're nowhere to be found uh, things start collapsing and so <clears throat> what is the future of this uh modern economy that produces very little and depends apparently on uh countries abroad for the vast bulk of its uh, manufactured goods uh what is the future going to be like is it going to be one that uh resembles the uh industrial boom of the 19th century or more like the uh, 18th century where people are basically just making things in their garage uh by the simple fact that they can't get anything anymore uh, from these extended supply chains. Um, I'm leaning more towards the latter. I, I think the, the past year and a half has demonstrated that uh, we live in a very fragile uh, economy that as whatever the Fed or the, the government is telling you has a very difficult time provisioning things when there's a slight hiccup in, uh, in the system. And I think people are just naturally going to start disconnecting from it and trying to supplement their lives by doing things themselves more. Uh, is that more efficient? Not really, but it may bring about what uh, Benjamin Franklin hoped for and maybe what Adam Smith was trying to get at was that maybe that's a more uh, equitable society where people have a closer connection to their um their sustenance and they put more meaning into it uh, spiritually uh, i know that sounds corny but I, I mean i can speak to this from my personal life you know when i build something myself i'm a hell of a lot more proud of it than if i buy it uh and i think the same goes for you know having a family or uh you know a sturdy relationship if you put work into it and it, it works out i think there's a lot of connection to that i think if things are just given to us or if they're just delivered to us i, I think we lose a lot of that um that that connection that you know we we used to have so i don't know that's kind of my forecast i think there's there's just going to be a decentralization because the system is just not functioning very well i think uh nick you wanted to add something Oh, well, <clears throat> to respond to Adam, uh, yeah, it'd be nice. I think the system, though, is designed to prevent exactly that. Yeah, everything that they're doing is... Oh, it, it, it definitely is. It, it definitely is. you got to have like a, a license for everything now. Uh, but there, I think that's what the black market is for. <laughs> and frankly, that's kind of what's going to be... The oligarchs know. are buying up major land holdings. I mean, farmland in America. Uh, the buying it up etc the goal of it is to prevent exactly that well I think the goal is, you know, this is again is the obfuscation goal. right I mean they, it'll be the creation of a numerity of of shell companies and and it'll be a, a, a sort of backwards and forwards mergers and you know it'll create a network that is too incomprehensible for whatever they want to use that land for to really understand who owns it i mean and the only reason we know who owns it is, is there's some federal filings and state filings and there's a few like remaining 
journalists who've talked about it, but without that, the level of complexity that can be so easily created now that was pioneered over a hundred years ago, you know, you're really, really, you're, you so are so far removed from the kind of world that was envisioned for the early American commercial life. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, like, I don't, I don't know if, if the American system is worth preserving at that point because it, it's been so clearly hijacked and there's elements of it that are corrupted. Uh, you can't like, you know, private ownership is great, but you're, you're allowing uh, ownership of untold amounts of, of land and then obfuscation of ownership of that land and what it's used for. You have a situation in which millions of people are participating in and dependent upon a system that they don't understand and that is purpose-built to destroy them and their children. No, it can't stand. Fuck it. Yeah. Well, there's there's an interesting, you know, going back to the beginning of the book, I forgot to mention that um, uh, Chandler lays out eight propositions, if you will. And uh, I would say that throughout the course of the book, and maybe throughout the course of the show, we've made them pretty clear is that they they are real and they did come about. Um, and he seems to think that this is permanent. Um, he, you know, he, again, the book was written in the late seventies. Um, but everything I've read from Chandler and everything I know about the man, he viewed this as a, as a complete historical process. In other words, he's, his, his job was to just document how it all came to be and that not, there's no necessary way out that, um, until there's some kind of, you know, broad spectrum breakthrough in how we think of production and how we think of management of goods, or there's a collapse, one or the other, this is just going to remain as the, the model going forward. So um, I guess to kind of leave you guys with this knowledge, you can, and then you can kind of use this to view your day-to-day corporate life. Uh, the first proposition is that the modern multi-unit business enterprise replaced small traditional enterprise when administrative coordination permitted greater productivity, lower costs, higher profits, and coordination by market mechanisms. The second proposition is simply that the advantage of internalizing the activity of so many businesses and units of businesses within a single enterprise could not be realized until a managerial hierarchy had been created. Such advantages could only be achieved when a group of managers had been assembled to carry out the functions formerly handled by price and market mechanisms. Whereas the activities of single-unit traditional enterprises were monitored and coordinated by market mechanisms, the producing and distributing units within a modern business enterprise are monitored and coordinated by middle managers. Top managers, in addition to evaluating and coordinating the work of middle managers, took the place of the market and the owners in allocating the resources for future production. Thus, the existence of a managerial hierarchy is a defining characteristic of the modern business enterprise and the modern world. A multi-unit enterprise without such managers remains little more than a federation of offices. 
Such federations were formed to control competition between units or to assure enterprises or sources of raw materials or outlets for finished goods and services remained under control. The owners and managers of the autonomous units agree on common buying, pricing, production, and marketing policies. If there were no managers, these policies were determined and enforced by legislative and judicial rather than by administrative means. Such federations were often able to bring small reductions in information and transactions, but they could not lower costs or increase productivity. They could not provide the administrative coordination that became the central function of modern business enterprise. The third proposition is that the modern business enterprise appeared for the first time in history when the volume of economic activities reached a level that made administrative coordination more efficient and more profitable than market coordination. The fourth proposition is that once a managerial hierarchy has been formed and had successfully carried out its function of administrative coordination, the hierarchy itself will become a source of permanence, power, and continued growth. In Werner Sombart's phrase, the modern business enterprise took on a life of its own. Traditional enterprises were normally short-lived. They were always partnerships, which were reconstituted or disbanded at the death of retirement of a partner. If a son carried on a father's business, he found new partners. Often the partnership was disbanded when one partner decided that he wanted to work with another. On the other hand, the hierarchies that came to manage the new multi-unit enterprises and the broader American industrial system had a permanence beyond that of any individual or group of individuals who worked in them. When a manager died, retired, or was promoted, or left an office, another was ready and trained to take his place. Men came and went. The institution and its offices remained. The fifth proposition is that the careers of the salaried managers who directed these hierarchies became increasingly technical, professional, and isolated. And these new business bureaucracies, as in other administrative hierarchies requiring skills, selection, and promotion, became increasingly based on training, experience, or performance rather than family relationship or money. With the coming of modern business enterprise, the businessman for the first time could conceive of a lifetime career involving a climb up the ladder. In such enterprises, managerial training became increasingly longer and more formalized. Managers carrying out similar activities in different enterprises often had the same type of training and attended the same type of schools. They read the same journals and joined the same associations. They had an approach to their work that was closer to that of lawyers, doctors, and ministers than that of the owners and managers of small traditional businesses. The sixth proposition is that as the multi-unit business enterprise grew in size and diversity, and as its managers became more professional, the management of the enterprise became separated from ownership. The rise of the modern business enterprise brought a new definition of the relationship between ownership and management and therefore a new type of capitalism to the American economy. Before the appearance of this firm, owners managed and managers, managers owned. Even when partnerships began to incorporate, their capital stock stayed in the hands of a few individuals or families. The seventh proposition is that in making administrative decisions, 
Career managers preferred policies that favored the long-term stability and growth of themselves to those that maximized current profits. In this way, the desire of the managers to keep the organization fully employed became a continuing force for further growth. The eighth and final proposition is that as a large enterprise grew and dominated major sectors of the economy, they altered the basic structure of those sectors and of the economy and of life as a whole. The new bureaucratic enterprises did not, it must be emphasized, replace the market as the primary force. The current decisions as to flows and long-term ones as to allocating resources were based on estimates of current and long-term market demand. What the new enterprises did do was take over from the market the coordination and integration of the flow of goods and services from the production of the raw materials through the several processes of the production to the sale to the ultimate consumer. Where they did so, production and distribution came to be concentrated in the hands of a few large enterprises. At first, this only occurred in a few sectors or industries where technological innovation and market growth created high-speed and high-volume throughput. By the middle of the 20th century, the salaried managers of a relatively small number of large mass retailing and large mass transporting enterprises coordinated current flows of goods through the processes of production and distribution and allocated the resources to be used for future production and distribution in major sectors of the economy. By then, the managerial revolution in American business had been executed.